I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Good evening. Welcome to Regeneration. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We cherish it, and we ask that you would... Uh, reveal to us what you desire us to learn this evening as we open your scriptures. Holy Spirit, uh, minister to the hearts and spirits and souls that are here this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 53. Now, the attention grabber to me in this section of scripture is, is division. And... Um, the, the usual feeling that division brings is often a, a negative one. And, and there are things that our culture and our society and our world deem negative as well. So I, I just want to do a quick pointing to, to three of those things. So one of those things is uh, having a, a dogmatic uh, belief or value system. And, and that tends to be looked upon negatively. Uh, another one is, is rejecting others' beliefs and values. And that tends to be looked upon negatively by our world as well. And thirdly, um, how we live our Christian life uh, and our Christian beliefs and our values, those are sometimes looked upon pretty negatively also. So first, let's take a look at dogmatism. Um, What's commonly associated with being dogmatic is usually narrow-mindedness and kind of like this authoritative uh, nature that that, that goes along with it. Even if the dogmatism is, is well thought out, with us 
by creating us and speaking to us and for those of us who believe what he tells us for us to share what he has spoken to us with others who haven't heard it and so that they can also believe and what we share as, as followers of, of Jesus is true and, and the truth can be perceived as arrogant even though it is still truth now I think Jesus was perceived by some especially the religious to be arrogant when really that's conviction conviction of the truth and I think that we sometimes confuse arrogance with conviction and so that second idea of the, what our culture looks at negatively is rejecting others' values and rejecting others' beliefs, which I also find inconsistent between the Christian world and non-Christian world, in that I, I find it common in our culture to that it is fine to reject the beliefs and values of Christianity. It, it's okay to do that. That, that society accepts that, the world accepts that, but it's not okay for Christians to reject the values and beliefs of other faiths or other people. That's not okay. And we're looked upon as negative in that. And, and I find that inconsistent. And Paul writes in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, that the elders and overseers must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. As followers of Jesus, we hold firm to the Word of God, and we rebuke that which is in contradiction to it. And many don't like that Christians reject values and beliefs of others, while our values and beliefs are so easily rejected by others without even them thinking about it. And lastly, our culture likes to look negatively upon how Christians live. And many of us misrepresent Jesus, right? I mean, let's be honest, we've messed up quite a bit and we've given a bad testimony of what Christians are like. And there are those who call themselves Christians who are just really self-absorbed, that are just really narcissistic, that, that faith in Jesus has turned into how, how happy one can be or how materially blessed one can be or how artistic, or for fulfilled, or creative, or successful, or beautiful, or blah, blah, blah. There's, the list is large. But that's not Jesus. There are spiritual words that are tied to that narcissism, and people tie that also onto the gospel, but that's not Jesus. It's not to say that a relationship with Jesus isn't fulfilling, or isn't beautiful, or isn't happy, or isn't artistic, or all these other types of things. Those may be results of the gospel, but that is not the gospel itself. Right? In presenting Jesus, we don't present that having a relationship with Jesus will make you more of anything. Right? It won't make you more happy, it won't make you more successful, it won't make you more creative. It might. It might do those things. The byproduct of that might happen. But Jesus really isn't about that. Right? Jesus, Jesus is for everyone, right? Everyone needs Jesus, so we can't present a relationship with Jesus as a way to be more financially successful. Because then what's the need for someone who is financially wealthy to have Jesus in their life? What's the need for that? Or what about the person who's extremely creative and doesn't think that they need any more creativity? And yet we're kind of throwing out there that that's what a relationship with Jesus is. It'll make you more creative or it'll help you appreciate things more or be more artistic or be more this and be more that. And we can p 
plug in any potential byproduct of having a relationship with Jesus in there. But that's not what it's all about. And we misrepresent Jesus when we focus on these potential byproducts of having a relationship with Him. We present Him as irrelevant. Right, so did Jesus present Himself the way that we present Him? You know, when we're talking to people and, and sharing the gospel and we're saying, like, oh, if you accept Him, He has all these things for you and, and all this stuff. He doesn't present Himself like that at all. He actually presented Himself in such ways that, that stirred anger in people. Right, that made them upset. So much so that people wanted to kill Him and they eventually did kill Him. Jesus, yes, He brings unity. But He also brings about division. And Jesus has this dual action of uniting and dividing. And much like the nature of fire, so let's take a look at verse 49 and unpack that a little bit. Verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I came to cast fire. Now, in looking at that word fire, and we're studying the Gospel of Luke right now, when in the Gospel of Luke was fire mentioned, and who was in the picture there? So you look back to Luke chapter 3, and the character mentioned there is John the Baptist. And I just want to point out three verses from Luke chapter 3 there, verses 9, 16, and 17. And they read this, Even now the axe is laid to the roots of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, do you notice any similarities to Luke chapter 3, verses 9, 16, and 17 in our text this evening, Luke chapter 12, 49 through 51? Right there, there, there's this reference to fire, and there are some other similarities as well. John talked about the baptism, right? The baptism in Luke chapter 3, verse 16. Jesus talked about the baptism in Luke chapter 12, verse 50. And there's, this also, there's also this reference to division. John the Baptist spoke about it in Luke chapter 3, verses 9 and 17. Jesus speaks about it in Luke chapter 12, verse 51. Now we'll take a look at verses 50 and 51 a little bit more later. But I wanted to point out this observation uh, before we move on because what John was prophesying about in Luke chapter 3 was truly prophetic of Jesus' ministry and, and what Jesus spoke about in Luke chapter 12. Now, in looking at John the Baptist, who was he? Because he's a really significant figure in the Christian faith, so it's important for us to take a look at who John the Baptist was. John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus said this of John in Matthew chapter 11, 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So no one greater than John the Baptist, because he was the last of the Old Testament prophets, that he actually saw Messiah. He actually saw Jesus. Right? So, so there's not one greater than him, but n not greater than those least in the kingdom, because those of us who are least in the kingdom, we've lived to see the death and the resurrection of Jesus. 
John the Baptist was dead before that, but he's the greatest there because he saw Jesus in real life. But even the least in the kingdom is greater than him because we had Jesus die on the cross for us and resurrect. So the least of us is greater than even that. And so to get a picture of what the prophet John the Baptist was working with, let's take a, a look at one of the last prophecies in the Old Testament. So we'll take a look at Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So just take a look at Matthew, flip it over one, that's Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Now you notice this topic of fire with John the Baptist, with Jesus, and, and the Old Testament. It all, it's all over the Bible, actually. And if you did a word study of, of fire, you, it, it's pretty enlightening. And we're not going to take a look at all of them, but I want to take a look at the one that's in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God released the church to the world with tongues as of fire. There's a picture of fire at the beginning of the church. And if, if you look at the end of the Bible, at the book of Revelation there's mention of fire 26 times at the last book of the Bible. So when Jesus said in verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it would were already kindled. Jesus knew of all the references of fire in the Bible, right? And, and there's no doubt that fire references many things. But to keep our study concise this evening, I just want to point out three aspects of fire. Number one is that fire is a picture of a severe judgment. Secondly, that fire is a refining purification. And thirdly, that it is a picture of supernatural power. And so first, severe judgment. You recall that in Luke chapter 3 verse 17, it says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, where else is chaff mentioned? Now, if you look back to Psalm chapter 1, let me read that for us. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now when fire is spoken of in the Bible, there's also this definite aspect of this refining purification, right? Just as shared in Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, with the refiner's fire and the goldsmith and the silversmith. And then there's a third aspect of fire. And that aspect of fire is that supernatural power that we spoke about in earlier in Acts chapter 2, right? And that on the day of Pentecost when the church was released. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12 verse 49, I came to cast fire on earth 
and would that it were already kindled. What does that mean? Well, kindled means that the fire is already going. That there's a, there's a spark already there. So what does it mean? Now Jesus is pointing to the cross. Jesus is pointing to the place where redemption took place. Right? So Jesus so desired to save us, to redeem us, that even if it meant death for Him, He was going to do that. And the foundational design of redemption and salvation lies upon the death of Jesus Christ. The aspects of fire are affixed to this design, right? The severe judgment, the refining purification, the supernatural power, all those aspects of fire are affixed to this design of the cross. And characteristics of this fire are a declaration of a severe judgment to those who are not followers of Jesus. And it is a refinement and purification for those in Jesus. And it's a releasing of supernatural power for those in Jesus. And so that's what's happening in Malachi chapter 3. For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. So you see the picture? Do you see what's happening there? The goldsmith, the silversmith, is skillfully using this refining fire to purify these precious metals. Right? And the fire was used to separate all those impurities from those precious metals. Now, when did the goldsmith or silversmith know that he had completed that refinement process? When did he know that? He knew that when he could see his reflection on that silver or on that gold, that if he looked at it and it wasn't that mirror-like object where he could see himself, that there were still impurities in there. He would have to continue working on that and refining that. So you see what Jesus is doing with those of us who belong with Him. That when we're in that refinement, when we're in that purification process, and He's working out and getting all that junk out of us so that when He looks at us, He can see Himself. And Peter mentions this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that you're going through difficult times because it just may be a time of God removing that junk from within you so that Jesus can be seen in you. So that the reflection of Jesus can be seen in you. And and this is refinement. And refinement will, will open the doors to bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. And it's only through His supernatural power that we're able to do this. And we can't do this on our own, right? He's done this, and He's done it through the cross. Now, with this fire, there is a baptism for Jesus to be baptized with. Verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. How great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now before the fire comes the baptism, right? Speaking of the cross. Now before the fire of Pentecost came a baptism, right? Came Jesus' baptism, the death, the cross of Jesus. That doesn't exclude us, right? We we go through this. Before the supernatural power that they received to unleash the church, they went through this refinement, 
They went through a baptism. They went through a death to themselves, right? So we can't avoid the baptism if there is to be any godly spiritual power within us. The road to glory with Jesus is through the cross. It is through dying to ourselves. If you look at church history, it would be really, really challenging to find someone who was powerfully influential in the service of the kingdom of God who did not experience the cross themselves. You'd be hard-pressed to find that. Right? Who didn't experience difficult times, a death to themselves, a baptism, who was powerfully influential as a disciple of Jesus? And you look back to Jesus' baptism by his cousin John the Baptist. And this time let's take a look at Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. To fulfill all righteousness. See, Jesus was obedient to the will of God the Father. Right? He was obedient to being baptized by John in the Jordan. He was obedient dying on the cross on Calvary. Now, have any of you wondered why Jesus had to be baptized? Because baptism is like a baptism of repentance, right? So why would Jesus have to be baptized if he was sinless? Well, the reasoning is, is that Jesus is identifying with us. Jesus is identifying with us. He is recognizing us as sinners. He's recognizing us for our state, our sinful state. And the will of God the Father can be found in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, right? We all know this, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And so he recognizes that. He recognizes that we needed needed him to take on the sin from us. And the picture of baptism we see in the Jordan River was a foretaste of Jesus' death on the cross. Except the picture on the cross is a lot more horrific. And the ministry of Jesus, it launched at his baptism. Right? It launched at his baptism. There wasn't anything that happened before that. It kind of was like Jesus' birth, and there were these quiet years, and then he got baptized. And so it was the launch of his ministry. Now, as baptism was the launch of his ministry, that dying to self, Jesus' ministry was completed at the crucifixion, dying to himself. Right, so the cross was always the plan. Whether it was the foretaste, a foreseeing of seeing Jesus go into the water and come back up, and whether it was Him dying on the cross, it was always the plan. Now I wonder if Mary kind of knew what happened in Cana at Galilee. Right? At the time of Jesus' first miracle, you remember that? There was a wedding, they ran out of wine, Mary says to Jesus, they have no more wine. Then, and then in John chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus said to His mom, Woman, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And I kind of just wonder if she had any clue of like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Just make more wine, would you? And so when we take communion, when that grape juice is taken, that is our symbol of the wine and of Jesus' blood. And when we take that 
symbol that of Christ's blood spilled for us. When Mary said they have no more wine, that was true. They ran out, right? They, they were they were done with that. They had, literally had no more wine, and Jesus had not died on the cross yet. And the wedding at Cana didn't have anything to do with Jesus, and his time on the cross had not yet come yet in terms of that symbolism of wine and blood and making that wine present and things like that. That time, that hour had not yet come. But the cross was always the design. And so later on in John's Gospel, in John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Because the hour has now come. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Right? The plan of salvation was always the cross. And so Jesus wasn't simply just a good teacher who taught us how to live and be good people. And He wasn't just this good philosopher about uh, teaching how to love people and treating each other as we'd like to be treated. He never claimed to be those things even though He was. Jesus claimed to be Messiah. Jesus claimed to be the Savior of the world who desires to, to save us from our sins. He claimed to be God. Verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished so don't cheapen the death of Jesus by claiming that he's anything but God he's God now growing up uh, on my mom's side of the family it was heavily Buddhist we had all these Buddhist idols at my grandfather's house and my aunt's homes and uncle's homes and things like that. And they also practiced ancestor worship. So we had these big black and white photos of great-grandma and grandpa and grandma and all these things. And the incense there and the tangerines there and the liquor and all the food and the chicken and all that stuff. We had all this stuff out there. They also claimed to be Catholics. And so along with all these things, there were like statues of Mary and the crucifix with Jesus hanging on it and things like that. And something that I really appreciate about the Catholic Church is that the cross isn't empty. Because in a lot of Protestant churches, it's just the cross, right? It's just the cross. Because I understand that they believe He's resurrected, so He's not on the cross anymore. So I understand that. But there's something to be said seeing that Jesus was hanging on the cross. To see how painful he was, to see how emaciated he was, to see how much stress was put on his physical being. Now you know what was confusing to me as a child is as I walked into this home with this smorgasbord of faiths, right? There's, there's all these different faiths that are represented here. And, and I'm going there and, and, and it was confusing until that faith became my own. Until faith in Jesus became my own and so seeing that Jesus was beaten and bloodied and, and bruised and dying and hanging on the cross, and while I look at the other symbols of, uh, of Buddhism, that, you know, Buddha was pretty happy. And those Buddhist idols were pretty happy there. And they had big smiles on their faces and they were chilling, sitting down, or they were standing up with buddies or, you know, these different things. And, and why Jesus was looking so emaciated and wasting away while Buddha and the other Buddhist idols that were in my grandfather's house, they looked like they had plenty to eat. I mean, they, they looked pretty good. And so it didn't dawn on me until it, my faith was my own that, you know, the cross was always the plan. And it wasn't for us to present our religion or our faith in terms of everything's good. 
everything's good. You're going to get all these blessings. Everything in life is going to be good. It wasn't that way. The cross was always the plan. Dying to ourself was always the plan. Jesus, as our Savior, was always the design. And God's will was not for Him to, to send Jesus to be this great teacher and philosopher. God's will for us is not about happiness or fulfillment or health or wealth or prosperity. There is a refinement. There is a fire. There is a death to self. There is a baptism. And it's hard for us because we're consumed with this world of better, faster, stronger, smarter, um, whatever-er. And so when we present Jesus in these ways, we cheapen the gospel. Right? It's no wonder that people aren't interested in Christianity for the long haul. You kind of wonder how people get started in Christianity and how did they fall off. I kind of wonder in their, whenever the evangelism happened, did we present to them the wrong gospel? Did we tell them that it's going to rescue their marriage and then that was it? And then once it was fine, hey, we don't need Jesus anymore. Did we tell them that it's going to bless your business? Did we tell them this wrong thing? Did we tell them anything but the gospel? Did we tell them it's going to make you a better artist? It's going to make your art more beautiful? It's going to make you more creative? Did we, did we give them this wrong sense of what Jesus is? Right. So there are many in the church who have misrepresented Jesus, thinking that Jesus is all about these types of things. But He's not. Those might be byproducts of having a relationship with Jesus, but that's not Jesus. Don't shortchange the gospel. He came to die for our sins. To do something that no one else could do. And all of us are sinners. There's no way around that one, right? Some people can show that they are happy enough. Right, And if you're presenting the gospel and saying like, oh, you look really unhappy, and if you come to Jesus, your life is going to be so much more happy. But what about the person who's genuinely really happy? And you're trying to present happiness. Or the person who is really, really wealthy, and they're wealthy enough. So you present that, oh, you know, the, the gospel can give you more wealth. It can make you more rich. But if they have that already, then they don't need the gospel. No one can say that they are sinless enough. One sin is one sin too many. So you cannot do that. We are all with sin. Romans chapter 3 verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the only thing that we can present as Jesus rescuing people from their sin. Everyone. And the byproducts, yeah, you might be blessed by those byproducts. But it's the sin that Jesus takes from everyone. And so Jesus took that sin upon Himself so that you and I are righteous before a holy God. And now let me wrap up verse 50 with this. And it's the story of James and John, the sons of Zebedee in Mark chapter 10. And so they asked Jesus if they could sit on either side of Jesus when the time of glory came. And this was how Jesus replied in verses 38 and 39 of Mark chapter 10. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. I don't think they realized how scary that was. How scary verse 39 was. I think they just heard and they were just like, Hey, cool. Yeah, awesome. They were all baptized. 
Except for John, they were all martyred. They all died. They were all killed. The difference between Jesus' baptism and their baptism is that Jesus' baptism was an atonement for our sin. The sacrifice of Jesus was the atonement, while the baptism of James and John, they don't do that sort of thing. They just kind of died. And what's similar in the disciples' baptism and Jesus' baptism is that the suffering and the sacrifice both happened. The suffering they went through, right? They all got killed. Peter hung upside down. And so with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. We will suffer. We will die to ourself if we are followers of Jesus. And so knowing this, why do some of us live our lives so self-absorbed? And too many of us who claim to follow Jesus are so occupied with ourselves. So is it a surprise that the testimony of the church is so weak in so many places? There are too many people who are living and proclaiming a false gospel. Verse 51, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. You notice that Jesus didn't even give them a chance to answer there, right? He asked this question, he says, No, I tell you, but rather division. Now you think about Isaiah prophesying about Jesus, and you're thinking like, what, but isn't he supposed to be the Prince of Peace? And you look at Luke chapter 2 and, and the story of the angel coming and, and, for, and Jesus is there and, he, and the angel is telling Mary, Jesus is here and he's peace, right? He will bring peace. And there's this not yet aspect to it too. Yes, he is peace. But his message now before his return is divisive. Right? The cross is, is not neutral. And in following Jesus, division will occur in the most intimate of relationships. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat this. No one will be able to accuse Jesus of false advertising when they're there. Jesus has told us what he wants us to know. He's not giving us any false hope, any false expectation. He keeps his promises. He tells no lies. We know what we're getting into with Jesus. You recall back in Luke chapter 9 verse 58. When someone wanted to follow Jesus and Jesus said, you know, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. See, Jesus wasn't about a popularity contest and just saying, hey, yeah, come on, hang out with me. You know, we're, we're going to hang out and just go camping and whatever. We'll just hang out, out here and look at the stars and have good stories and have s'mores or something. And, you know, he's not, he's not about that. He was about telling people the truth, and the truth is not always popular. How about this one? Because there are a lot of tough things that the Bible says. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You're thinking, what? I thought Jesus was all about family. I thought Christianity is all about family. And so what about verses like Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, where it says, honor your father and your mother. Right, what about the Proverbs where Solomon wrote in chapter 13, verse 22 in Proverbs, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Or Proverbs 17, 6, grandchildren are the crown of the aged and the glory of children is their fathers. Now Jesus didn't come to void those verses. You read on in Matthew chapter 10 to see where this is leading in verses 38 and 39. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me 
is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, have you ever heard someone say, I need to find myself. I need to find myself. And I find that statement not consistent with the Christian faith. But I believe we have to know ourselves. I think we have to know ourselves. But in light of whom we are with God. So when we have these self-pursuits and self-agendas and self-fulfillments and self-interests, they need to be in line with the pursuits and agendas and fulfillments and interests of God. And much of that can be accomplished by dying to yourself. And when we die to ourselves for Jesus' sake, when we live for Jesus and not for ourselves, we will discover the things we are looking for. If you find what you think life is about outside of Jesus, you're going to end up losing it. And the flip side of that is, have you heard people say, I'm losing myself. I'm losing myself. And I don't find that statement consistent with the Christian faith either. Right? We, we have to know who we are in the light of God. Right? We are His creation. And when we lose ourselves, I think it's because we've fallen under the influence of, of other people or other things. But it isn't God. Right? And if you lose yourself for Jesus' sake you will actually find out why you exist. right? And if you lose yourself in anything else or in anyone else, whether it's a bad relationship or a bad working relationship or a bad marriage, or and, and you lose yourself in that, yes, you can lose yourself in that. If you do not identify strongly with your relationship with Jesus, you can lose yourself in family because your family is your idol. So Jesus' objective is not to separate the family. He just doesn't want us to idolize it. How often do we idolize our children? How often do you idolize your parents until you get to know them well enough, right? Then you're like, oh, they're no, no longer an idol. I know a lot. I know the truth. A relationship with Jesus puts a proper perspective on everything else. And if a relationship with Jesus is just a hobby or it's just an interest or it's just, you know, even just a religion, then things aren't in the proper perspective. A relationship with Jesus is divisive for those who don't have a real relationship with Jesus. So if, if you have a real relationship with Jesus and someone you love doesn't, it's going to be divisive. The question is whether you really have a relationship with Jesus or not. Verses 52 and 53. From now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I find the last ones not that hard to disagree with. I mean, that's obvious. Actually, my wife gets along fine with my mother. The listeners in Jesus' day, they would have thought back to Micah chapter 7, verse 6, after hearing Jesus say this. Because this is what Micah 7, 6 says. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. And what Jesus taught would have been really familiar to those guys listening. Like, hey, that sounds like Micah 7, 6 that he's talking about over there. So Jesus is not telling his disciples to turn on their families. Not at all. What happens is that there will be a conflict between family members who don't believe and those who do believe. 
And it's happening in, even in my family. Right? So my mom, who is not a believer, but as soon as I could read, she made me read a chapter a night of the King James Bible. And if I didn't, I got spanked. She also made me do, in addition to my regular homework, as soon as I could write, she made me transcribe a chapter of the Bible every day or I get spanked. And so this is what she had me do. King James Bible too. And so here I am reading a chapter every night. I'm transcribing one every day. And she's telling me to go to church every Sunday as well. She's the one that pushes me, even though I wanted, hey, mom, can I just stay home with you? No, you go to church with your dad. You're going to church with your dad. Or oh, you're going to get it. This is my mom. And so when I started getting really serious about my faith, something changed. She started saying things to me like, what's wrong with you? I, I wanted you to, to learn the Bible. I wanted you to go to church so that you'd be a good boy so that you'd have good morals and good ethics, but now you, the way you live your life, that's fanatical. You're fanatic. And so maybe some of you have experienced something similar in a conflict with those in your family. Right? Even though they're the ones that kind of pushed you, right? they put you in a Christian school or they put you in a Christian club or a youth group, and then when you come back and you're actually a Christian, they're like, what's wrong with you? I don't know, maybe you made me read the Bible every night, and maybe you made me transcribe the Bible, maybe you made me go to youth group and go to church and all this stuff. What do you mean? What's wrong with you? It's like a natural progression for me. And so I, I've heard this a lot with a lot of my peers, parents also, right? When, when my faith was starting to be more of my own, and my mom was talking to her family friends and talking to more about more of my, my extended family and stuff like that, and they'd be like, you know, it's great that you're a Christian and you live such a moral and ethical life and, and you know, you care about people and stuff like that. But you know what? Don't get too fanatical. You know, I know you want to go into, like, your, your mom told me that you wanted to go into the jungles of Burma and work with the refugees there. That's really dangerous. Don't do things like that. That's just fanatical stuff. What you should do is get a good job and make a lot of money. You could send a bunch of missionaries to go to Burma and work with the refugees there. That would go a lot further. Totally missing the point of the spiritual economy, right? It has nothing to do with that. It's dealing with calling. Or, hey, you're going to go into ministry? Are you sure? You have such a good job. And, and um, you know what? That job can provide for so many other missionaries. And you can plant a lot of other churches. But if you don't do that anymore, then you know, you're not going to have that money anymore. But really it was because you know, they wanted their Louis Vuitton purses at Christmas or something like that. So it's, it's, it's that sort of stuff, right? And so I would hear this from all these things. And I bring this up because the holidays are right around the corner. And Thanksgiving is this Thursday, and Christmas is next month. And as far as I'm concerned, New Year's Day is a Christian holiday due because it's based off of the Gregorian calendar. So that's ours too. So we're going to have to deal with these types of things with family members and with friends and people who are around that think, you're too fanatical. Of course I am, because it's God. This is God. This is not like my buddy. Right? This is God that we're serving. This is God that we're following. Of course we are. And it, if there isn't 
If you're a fanatic of Jesus and you don't run into conflict with someone who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, I think there's something wrong. If there isn't this division, maybe you're not as Christian as you thought you were. Maybe. Because I can only see it a couple ways. If there is no division, it's that the entire family is fanatical about Jesus. So there's no division, because really, everyone is right on board and we're right there for Jesus. Or, if there's no division, no one there is a fanatic of Jesus, including maybe you. If there is a mix, there will be division. It's bound to happen. My last Thanksgiving was this way. right? And and they always say that no religious talk and no politics... I was like, I'm good without the politics, but you can't... I'm a pastor. You're asking me to pray for the meal. Are you kidding? Like, So I can just say, in Jesus' name we pray, amen, and then never bring it up again? Are you kidding me? Like, no way. There's no way. And and I'm hosting. It's in my house. I can say whatever I want. So if there isn't a conflict, I I just kind of wonder... Is Jesus really present there then? If people are divided, right? If everyone's together, that we're all Jesus fanatics, then, yeah, probably no division. Or if you're all not, then probably no division. But if there's a mix, right? Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Things that live in the dark, they don't like light. Cockroaches. They scatter. Right? Nocturnal animals. I've never done this before, but I kind of wonder if you turn it like, ah, or what, what they do. I don't know. You know, when we've come into the light, it requires obedience. It requires loyalty. And the dark doesn't like light. So within your families this season, this week, next month, Is it united because everyone is a Jesus fanatic? Or is it united because no one is? Including yourself. And again, because if there's a mix, there's going to be division. And don't be a Christian in name only. Or a Christian that, oh, we go to church. And that's it. If you're the only Christian in your family, be the light in that dark place. Continue to pray for your family. Live obedient to the will of God. And I want to encourage those of you who may be in this position of heading home for the holidays, you're light. And if you bring division, yeah, Jesus said that. There is going to be a refinement process. You are going to go through the fire. You are going to go through a death to yourself before you receive that supernatural power. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray, God, for courage, obedience, just to follow your will, whatever that may be. And Lord, I ask that we aren't obnoxious and lacking in tact with who we are as followers of Jesus when we're around our family and friends uh, during Thanksgiving or Christmas or New Year's. What I ask, Lord, is, is when those opportunities arise, Lord, that you would give us the words to say, that you would give us the actions to, to do for us not to misrepresent you. That when we share 
what our relationship with, with you is, that it's not about these byproducts. It's, it's about you. And so, Lord, I pray for your blessing upon the people here this evening, for your equipping of them. In Jesus' name, amen.